So turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Paul pens that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hebrews tells us that the sin that so easily ensnares us is to be cast off, it's to be put away. Because it can snare us, sink us. David right now is last week's teaching when experienced a great victory. And as last we saw him, he was a warrior. He was one that his men would follow him at not only a command, but even simply the fact if he headed out alone, they would be with him. He was triumphant as a warrior. He would have been one in which you would say, why wouldn't I go with a winner? Why wouldn't I be with one who thwarts the enemy, whose God is on our side? So that's important to note. It's important to remember that David had a heart that followed after God. Very important to note. And the reason being is that you and I, who are challenged in our tenure on earth, will have challenges with sin. How do we know that? Well, if we go all the way back into chapter 4 in Genesis, which is the beginning of what happened when sin took dominion over mankind, one of the individuals influenced to sin after his folks was Cain. And God spoke to him in advance of sin taking root in his heart and the provocation of ultimately him obeying the voice of sin. It is a voice. And God basically said to him, if you do good, will I not receive it? In other words, Cain, I see your attitude towards your brother Abel and ultimately towards me and not rendering what is mine and actually what you know in your heart you should do. But God says to him that anger is going to be a problem. And he said as well, sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. God expects that sin not rule over us, but that we master it. The only way that we've found to master sin is to have a master greater than sin. Who's that? That's Jesus. He is our Lord. He's our Savior. He's our Deliverer. David knew this. And if David knew this, then how is it that he became vulnerable to ultimately sin? And so this is how it opens up. Again, there's principles to see here. I think we can tag many of them. And this is always good to reflectively and soberingly look at failure, but not to condemn one that fails, not even to condemn you and I that have failed. I think you and I would agree we failed, right? But God is faithful. He hasn't failed us. Have we lived in the consequence of having failed? Yep, I have, haven't you? But I don't allow that in the consequence to keep me from believing that God has blessed me in spite of that 
and desires to bless me moving forward in it. So David right now is in a position in which coming from a very successful routing of the enemy, and remember David has exercised generosity and compassion and kindness untold. He doesn't behave like a normal king of those days. He has no attributes that have similitude of what the pagan kings did, nor even what Saul did. He's entirely different from them. But in some manners, he has remained vulnerable and like them. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. We know this, that from this scripture and research done on it, that in those days, kings had a season in which warfare was engaged in. And I think that I understand this better because when we went to Israel, when you walked in the soils there, certainly around Galilee, but in many of the areas, you were, and I've explained this before, your flip-flops or your tennis shoes would accumulate that soil in a form of like mud and slime. And it wouldn't just dish off. It would continue to accumulate until you had platform flip-flops, platform tennis shoes. And you'd have to kick it on a rock or scrape it on a tree. You had to work with every footstep to keep it from clinging to you. And if you didn't, it made travel very difficult. In the same sense, this is a season in which kings go to war. And it's a picture that there is a season which is predictable for you and I. It may be any one of our seasons. But it's a season that requires us as one, children of the king, warriors for the king, to be able to not exult in his power, but to realize that he asks for us to participate. In the scriptures, we are told in Second Chronicles, in a phrase that's become popular in song, and you can look at it, chapter 20, Second Chronicles, verse 15, the battle belongs to the Lord. But in saying that, the Lord says, I want warriors for the battle. You won't be able to boast in the victory, but you will be able to bear witness of what I've done. So he wants us in the battle. When we look at this, you would say, well, was it altogether wrong for a king to send out his warriors? I'm not saying that that essentially was wrong. What it made David was vulnerable. That's what we see. So whenever what we don't do has rendered us vulnerable, then it requires us to have a second thought as to, hmm, is that a wise decision? I could have recreated with Christy on the tube, and I was really moving in that direction because she likes the water a lot and wanted me to ride with her. But I am saying that in this case, the Lord used something that for me was an apprehension to ultimately the betterance of deliverance. I had an apprehension about doing what was requested of me, nothing wrong with what she requested of me. 
And I was willing to go in and satisfy that. But had I done that, having not, again, fully appreciated what was actually happening, because this flooding had been going on for some time, and had that exchange happened, we wouldn't necessarily have seen it coming. What had happened is the bilge ports, again, were sinking below the waterline, and the waterline now was drafting in water that was contributing to the flooding. So had I gone with her and then Spencer followed us, we would have thought, huh, slow boat. Or we got to put Spencer on a diet. He's just weighing things down. I don't think we would have made it into shore. Where I was assuming kind of hundreds of gallons, Jeff was telling me possibly a lot more. <laughs> a lot more weight. I really believe we just made it in. And therefore, what I'm saying is that there are precautions that seemingly don't necessarily tie in with what we say, no big deal. But I believe the Lord used my apprehension as a means of then encouraging me upon a request. Something's not right to look in deeper. And David right now, I think in his heart, would have said, this is the time that I go to, I, we just had a victory. I can't take time off from the victory. I've got to stay with my warriors. So that's something the first that we want to look at. The other thing that we need to look at that I think in principle also helps us understand how it can happen there are these at least three areas. And that would be position. Whenever there's position with authority, the enemy loves to take advantage of that. But it's not wrong that you have position nor authority. What is wrong is when you are not fully acknowledging who's given you that position, that authority. To whom God has given much, much is required. And so there's a requirement. And I've been in positions of authority in different facets of authority. From governing my peers and also being governed by my peers. Being able to be a man that has authority, listening to the voice of your peers, is actually a wise thing. There's a lot of things that peers or those who are subordinates to you see that you don't see. That's what's called counsel. And so David right now was separating himself from actually men that could have counseled him wisely. So he separated himself because of perhaps right now what we would say is position. He had authority to do so. With authority, though, and in this case, kingship, he had unhindered strength. We call that power. David had power, unhindered strength. He was a strong man of valor. He could dispatch men of valor, and it was unhindered, unquestioned. Who would think that that would be a problem for David? And none of us would think that it could be a problem for us. But in spiritual life, there are checks and balances. And in this case, that check was not able to balance him in a time of vulnerability when he, as a king, by being a king, needed to be with his men on the battlefield. Thirdly, popularity. He had a lot of attention. Very often what happens 
in any type of vocation is how successful you are and how well you do. And so the Lord works actually diligently to file those things off that become problems of pride. David didn't really have a lot of that. Because he had moved over 10 years in the wilderness fleeing from Saul and accumulating a basically a title of man, this guy is good. And actually becoming quite a diplomat towards the enemies of Israel without being a provocation to his brother's Israel. He was quite an ambassador, quite a warrior. He still had a reputation that dates back to his high school years. You can't live off your reputation back in junior high or high school. It doesn't work. I've tried those stories from junior high and high school, and the look that usually comes across people's face, at least my peers, my group, is kind of, I thought they were great, great exploits. Did you hear about the 84-yard touchdown pass that I made? No? Do you care about it? No, not really. Pass the pizza. <laughs> we don't live off of our past exploits, but David may have been unable to let that go. And other people may not have been able to let that go. And so with this position and we have power and popularity, these things may have already set David up at a disadvantage because even being a man after God's own heart, he needed to have all of those tempered in his heart. I've discovered something about my sandals. Segway. I tried to put them on last week and I could not get them on. I thought, fatty feet. But actually the Lord was saying, not true. The leather's shrunk because you haven't been wearing it. What? You're not wearing that which is for your feet. The Bible says, in Ephesians in particular, that we are to shod our feet in the preparation of the gospel of peace. Remember, these are just illustrations. I read and I study. But the Lord was showing me simply a principle. In order for you to be shod, that needs to be on your feet. If not, it shrinks and it as well hardens. What do I need for that? The oil. It is not by might, it is not by power, but by my spirit, thus saith the Lord. And the spirit is likened as oil. And I've used that illustration before with my Bible. My Bible is supple because I use it, but it's cracked because it needs oil. Have I oiled it? I have, but it's not going to take away the cracks. It will preserve its suppleness and probably get me another 20 years if I live 20 years. But like my sandals, which would represent my preparation in the word of God and what I'm to wear it. David had the sure word of God that he was to wear as sandals on his feet. You may say, where? Where? He was to wear the preparation of the gospel of peace. He was a warrior that made peace for God, routing the enemies of God. The enemies are the ones that cause lawlessness and rebelliousness, the ones who promote wickedness. David literally was a peace officer for God, prepared by God to do a work because he had a heart for God. But he also had a mandate. And the mandate that David had goes back to the early portions of the law. 
And it's still our mandate. So if you would indulge me and turn back to uh, Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17 is a word for all those who would take the position of authority for God and for God's people. It's interesting because literally Moses is being told the direction of what the people will do. Right now we have God as king, the Lord Jehovah, and the mighty warrior of Israel's people. He was. But Moses was to pen this in 17, verse 14, principles for governing kings. Note, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, is that not what happened? It is what happened. It happened when that is precisely what they did. They rejected God. Samuel was the one that heard it. It broke his heart. He didn't want it. But God said, they've rejected me, Samuel. Give them what they want. And so Samuel, by God's sovereignty, said, you're going to pick that guy. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. There's not any man who looks more kingly than Saul. And yet we see that Saul was a picture of a king who was quite carnal, one who really did not have any intention of serving and honoring God. But notice what God says about the responsibility of the king. And it says this, You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Verse 16, But he shall not multiply horses for himself nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. He's setting up the requirements. Don't contribute to empowering yourself in a way in which you boast in what you've got and not what God has given to you. Don't go back. Egypt would have been known renownedly worldwide for the horses that they had and the chariots that they had. And God was saying, you're not going to be like them. You want a king? I'll give you a king. It's going to be chosen, though, from among you. But you will not go back and empower yourself. See, one of the things that we're seeing in today's culture is everybody wants to be empowered. That's the word. The power word is be empowered. And I'm kind of going, I tried that. I think I stopped at pressing like 204 pounds once. Now I am 204 pounds. It's enough. <laughs> empowered doesn't mean anything to me. But when I watch other people in the spirit empowered by God, that impresses me. Me, not so much. Others, wow. And so God was saying, this is your tendency. And you may say, what does this have to do again with David? Because in laying this coursework, David was to have known the law of God concerning the behavior of kings. And he knew for a long time that this was his destiny. Continuing, it says this, verse 17, Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away 
nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. He wasn't to multiply gold and silver for himself. That means in his own efforts, God would take care of his treasury. And by the way, David did in his tenure have much that God had given to him, enough so that he was able to say, and even out of my, of my precious riches, I give what? To the Lord. It was never about what he could retain for himself. David had a heart to give everything that he had for the Lord. But here, in what kings ought not do, he did. He multiplied wives to himself. He was given Michael. Michael was taken from him by his father-in-law, Saul, given to another man. He lost his wife. That was tragic. He meets another woman who actually was a deliverer for his men and ultimately for David in not letting wrath come upon him. Nabal was the man. We've studied him. And the study simply means in this light. He took counsel from a godly woman, but not from multiplied wives, from one. And I personally believe when you go into the scriptures, her name means joy. And in a judgment that God rendered to her husband, Nabal, who means foolish, he had the privilege of being a redeeming king in the making and to take her as his wife, he did. But what you need to know is that there was, that was the beginning, she being his second wife, Michael being the first, there would be six others that would follow. The one woman that we'll be talking about in these scriptures will be Bathsheba, his eighth. What did he do? He multiplied wives. Why? Because that's what kings of his day did, but it was not what God said he wanted. As a result of that, in violation of what this word says, he was already predisposed to be vulnerable to what? Satisfying the flesh. He had a companion, and I believe she was a favorable companion. Of the others, there's mysteries. Michael, less of a mystery. Bathsheba, less of a mystery. The others, really, apart from knowing their kids, a mystery. But this is what he was not to have done, and it is what he did, and it turned what? His heart from being completely committed to the Lord to being vulnerable to what? What men are vulnerable to? Visions. Visions of beauty. There is in our culture a split on this. Women are those who have great imagination. In other words, the novels that are romantic are very appealing to the women. They work in the heart and senses of the woman. Men are visual. Together in a marriage, it complements each other, the depths of the soul and the imagination of how romance ought to be and then the visualization of how romance ought to be, it's complemented. But apart from that, the enemy takes advantage of it. God knows that. And by the way, there's no appeasing the flesh. And so in this right now, these are the laws, these are the assets right now that God says, don't do it. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne, notice this, 
of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him, notice this, and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. Verse 20 that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So one of the things that we saw is that there were alliances that Saul forged, there were alliances that David forged, there were wives that both of them multiplied, and ultimately their hearts were turned. What kept one from being better than the other? Because what we also see with David is that he repented wholeheartedly, even though from it he would pen psalms that would also be relevant to you and I of what it means to be turned inside out. And even the songs that we sung today were really turned inside out. Mercy, mercy, Lord, I need your mercy, not receiving what I deserve. My boat probably did deserve to sink, but mercy, mercy, God was merciful for me and my family. The guy on the shore would have loved to have seen me sink. And he probably would have loved to have seen me challenge him in combat. And he probably would have prevailed and the Lord kept me back from that. You may say, is, was that, would that be all that bad if you had gone to him, you know, to address him? Well, I had anger in my heart. The Lord says if any of us harbor anger in our heart, we're guilty of murder. So that puts me kind of right in line as well with what David would be guilty of. No matter what our justification is, God would say, that isn't the way that I Work that isn't the way that I do things. I'm a saving God and I'm a delivering God. And you're going to have people that will not only insult you, but that will wish your demise and actually come after you for the destruction of your soul. So I was going through kind of a lot, but I do remember thanking the Lord that one, we made it to shore, and two, uh, I was able to receive the counsel of my wife. Don't go after that guy. Because I'm here today. But I guess it, Christy, cinching up the belt. Nobody's going to talk to us that way. And probably there wouldn't have been me to talk to. As much as I think I'm a warrior, I've learned I have limitations. And I wouldn't have prevailed. I think the Lord knew that. But boy, did I wrestle in my heart with being angry at him and maybe even a tinge salted hatred for what he wished upon me. I had a challenge with him. So I take you back there because in this position and authority that David had, power, unhindered strength that David had, popularity, great honor that he received from the time of being at least 15. My. And this brings us to what now he suffered from, pride, which is arrogance. 
It is the vulnerability of all of us. It is considered one of the first sins, obviously, that transacted between men towards God. It deceptively worked in Eve's heart. It then manifested itself in the life of Adam by basically being disobedient. It has terrible consequences. And then ultimately what we see is perdition. That's the Latin word which means destruction. Sin destroys. Sin has a consequence. Sin pays back. And whatever it may offer a person that ignores the signs, that says something's not right, God is always endeavoring to make it clear the moment of salvation, the time of deliverance, do we listen? Do we objectively say, hmm, something's not right here. I've got to change. I don't have, I don't have much time at all. That's why even in the songs that were sung, there's salvation songs, basically. There are some who, even in the midst of congregations, have not really received the Lord into their heart. And because all of the things seemingly add up, I'm doing fine here, I'm doing fine here, doing fine here, that's not so bad, that's not so bad. And it's the not so bad, not so bad in which there is, it's going to be bad for you. It will be bad. So vulnerability is one of the things that we see here. What was the other thing that David would have been familiar with? And this is really important to understand and appreciate all of what this story unfolds. And we won't get to it. We can't. But we're laying the bedrock for it. So go back to Exodus 20. I wanted to go there. And when you see it, you're going to go, of course. Of course he knew. What is it? It's the Ten Commandments. What does God say about those who are to worship him. God simply says this. You need to know David knew the Ten Commandments. We know the Ten Commandments. God's put it in our heart. How do we worship God? How do we tend our neighbors? How do we get along? God spoke all of these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. There you go. I don't want you in bondage. I delivered you from bondage. This is how you remain free. This is how you remain liberated. Verse 1, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first command. No other gods before me. No other person that becomes God in your life. No vocation that becomes more important than me as your God in your life. I've given you vocation. I've given you authority. It's all for me. It's not simply for you. You're a means by which I glorify myself. Second command was you shall not make for yourself carved images of any likeness of anything that is in heaven. No graven images. Don't try to conjure up who I am in your vain imagination. For I have revealed to you who I am through all creation. But don't try to capture it. Don't try to capture it. Because that's what the pagans have done. Ultimately, that was false religion. And so sometimes what happens is that people end up seeing other people as what? Idols. Why do we call it American Idol? Because we, ooh, it's no longer a talent show. It's idol worship. And we're intrigued with it. The best of the best. But it's idolatry. 
in essence, in essence, whenever something, someone becomes bigger than God, then we have taken this scripture and violated it. Tricky, but nevertheless, David would have been aware of this, and this wouldn't necessarily have been his problem, except that it seems to be that beauty was his snare. And at times, beauty is the idol manufactured by the hearts of men. And at times, strength is the idol manufactured by women. And very frequently, romance, the thought of something better, something bigger, something with someone else, is the image that is created that leads to ultimately a loss of appetite for the beautiful one, the beautiful son of God, the strong one, the mighty one. God brings us all back to the center of understanding that we're all vulnerable. But David had this as command from whom? Moses. This was to be in his heart. Three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Four, remember the Sabbath. That's all God had asked for his command to be honored to please him. He says this, though, with regard to the latter six, and that was this. Number five, honor your father and your mother. We don't have any evidence that David didn't do that. But we will have evidence that he didn't honor the mother and father of Bathsheba. Six, you shall not murder. David was not a murderer as a warrior. It is what he chose to do in covering up a sin and in being angry. Jesus would say, this is our indictment. For you and I, you, don't, you probably wouldn't have seen it from the tone of my voice yesterday. But I know deep inside of me, I was angry. Very angry. I didn't let it out, and I didn't pursue satisfaction of it. But the Lord would say to me, Rich, in what you felt about that guy, you murdered him. Really? Can't I just be a little bit angry? Just a little bit. Nope. Doesn't matter how you do it. It's murder. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. David knew this. This is a great word, way to understand it. When you talk about an adulterated product, it means something's been added to it. David had already done that. He had added something to the constitution, the covenant of marriage, which was multiplying his wives. So he'd added to it. It became diluted from what it should have been. So that's one of the things that helps us to identify. When anything's added to it, it dilutes it. It basically defiles it. The Lord says, this I don't want to take place. And it ultimately leads in this case, and this is what it's being meant, this is what's being mentioned right now, is a Love for a passion for someone that God has not intended for you to have. And you shall not steal. We don't have evidence that David did this. Not in the technical sense of the stealing, but we do have evidence coming up. You shall not bear false witness was number nine against your neighbor. And number 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. 
nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And this David certainly was guilty of on a time and day in which he was to be in battle and with his men. Verse 2 tells us the vulnerability, and we're going to stop very shortly in this part. It happened one evening that David arose from his bed, walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. It was not wrong for David to have awakened from his sleep, but one would probably suspect that with eight wives and other ladies in his life, why was he alone? For him, that may have been indeed his error. It is not good that man is alone. I will make him a helpmate suitable for him. Paul would urge the young believers within the church to exercise, as long as you can, in singleness, being devoted to him exclusively. And Paul would cite this to the men as the gift of basically abstaining from if you would, the desire or need to be with a woman. In other words, to just live your life singly devoted to God. It's not in any way, and I say that even at weddings, an error to fall in love. That's wonderful. It's a picture, actually, of what the Lord has made provision for in the house of God. It's a wonderful thing, historic. You know, for Christy and I, we're coming up on our 25th shortly. And it's historic. I've been her number one boyfriend for 25 years. I've surpassed them all. That's victory. It's not wrong where David, per se, was at in his residency. But what happened, though, is because he wasn't with the men, his residency became vacated and his mind became less steeled towards the commands of God to obey them. And so the, the lesson here for us as we close and as this is laying again a bedrock for what unfolds, it's actually a very, it's actually a very quick story. But if it's simply treated as a story and not a principle to live by and to be examined in, then it becomes simply an account that we just fold the page over. So we need to be praying for, again, the things that as we have our hearts examined, as the songs that were sung today remind us of how to allow the Lord to just unfold us and turn us inside out and change our minds and that we don't, we're no longer motivated by fear we stand in God's love, and we are in pursuit of no other love than God's love.